we began this series uh, two weeks ago, How to Meet the Enemy. We're talking about spiritual warfare. Um, our title today is Fight the Good Fight. We are moving quickly in this series. Uh, I don't have time to do review this morning of where we've been, but I hope that you'll take notes. And uh, please know that you can always listen online to the messages. <clears throat> the advantage of doing that is that you don't have to look at me while you're listening. I want to share with you six operational directives for spiritual battle from the Word of God. Six operational directives for spiritual battle from the Word of God. And the first is this, that we would secure a transfer of citizenship. Secure a transfer of citizenship. What do I mean by that? I mean this, that nothing we're talking about in this series will make any sense to you or matter to you at all if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you've not bent your knee and surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've not looked to him for forgiveness for your sin, your rebellion against him, if you've not experienced the transformation of heart and mind that the Spirit of God brings about in the lives of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then you are still allied with the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. You can say, well, I, I think there is. I'm just kind of not sure yet. I'm not committed. You are allied still with the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. You are a citizen of one kingdom or another. And the Bible says that of you that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, that you have no spiritual life in you, that you are following the course of this world that is ruled and controlled and manipulated by Satan. You are following the prince of the power of the air. It is, it is his spirit, the spirit of disobedience, not the Holy Spirit that is at work in you. That you are by your very nature, like all of the rest of us apart from Christ, an object of God's wrath. That's what God's word says about you, about any of us apart from Christ. And that's the bad news. So here's the good news. But God, don't you love that? Don't you love those two words? But God? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I want to just ask you this morning, have you transferred your citizenship? You're, are you, Evan mentioned this morning that we believe you're here for a reason, that God knew that you were going to be here, that there was something that God wanted to speak into your life. And if there's anything God would hope to speak into your life, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, is this. Will you transfer your citizenship? You do that by simple 
faith in Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, deliver me. I, I, don't, I haven't done anything to, to deserve your rescue, but will you rescue me? I don't understand the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus, but will you rescue me? Will you transfer me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son? I want to ask you this morning, if you have that desire, would you just raise your hand where you are? You've never made that commitment before. Raise your hand where you are. Nothing more important than that. Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, he has delivered us, past tense. Done deal. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. If you've trusted in Christ, you never have to worry. Again, am I a Christian? Am I included in the kingdom of God? Is my name written in heaven? You never have to wonder. Paul says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, that which was worthless, made valuable again, invested with great worth, given a new future. The forgiveness of sins are slate wiped clean forever. So that as it relates to God's view of us, he sees us included in his son. He sees, as he looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus, and he says, you are mine. You're part of my family. If you have not transferred your citizenship, please do that today. There is no guarantee of tomorrow for any of us. Have you transferred your citizenship from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son, Jesus. Secondly, second operational directive, stay in your lane. Some of you are going to take issue with what I'm about to teach because you've been taught otherwise. But please, please listen. Because what I think I'm going to teach you this morning comes from God's word. I've said a couple of times in the past weeks when we come to this issue of fighting the good fight that, that it's not what you think it is. It's different than you think it is. And, and this is where this really begins. How many of you in a group setting uh, have heard a Christian pray something like this? Satan, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. Any of you heard that? Some of you heard that? Some of you may have done that. Funny thing, praying to Satan. Satan, we bind you in the name of Jesus. Anybody heard that language? Okay. Satan, we claim authority over you in the name of Jesus. Any of you heard that? How many of you have ever wondered what they mean when they say those things? Raise your hand. You've looked at that and you say, where are they going with that? Because there is a presumption in that, in those statements, in those intended rebukes or bindings or claiming authority, there is a presumption of authority over Satan and other demonic entities. And I want to take a minute or two to answer the question, what is spiritual authority? What is the spiritual authority that they are claiming to take? 
Let's begin with the word itself. The Greek word for authority in the New Testament is exousia. Exousia. It, it means power. It means authority. Depending on how it's used, it can mean influence. It can mean permission. Most often in the New Testament, the word exousia is used with regard to empowerment that is conferred or delegated. God the Father conferred authority on God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in turn, conferred authority to his apostles. He conferred authority to some of his disciples for specific purposes. Let me just illustrate this for you. Jesus Christ possesses all, all authority. Ultimately, in the cosmos, in the grand scheme of things, Jesus Christ is the one possessing today all authority. To his disciples, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Past tense, has been given to me. Earlier, in a confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus had asserted, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, understand this, that in my, in my assertion of authority as I cast out demons, as I take authority over sickness and disease, it is a sign to you that the kingdom of God is now here. Jesus, when he began his public ministry, the first words out of his mouth that are recorded were these, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or literally now here. In the coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God comes to earth. Heaven invades earth. The 12 apostles were given power and authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. The specific purpose of that delegation of authority, again, was so that the power and authority of the kingdom of God would be demonstrated in them and through them in order to gain a hearing for the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. It was so that they would be hearable. They win a right to be heard by the demonstration of spiritual authority. Luke 9, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Notice that, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Mark chapter 6, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So they went out and proclaimed, again, here's the proclamation of the gospel. They proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now I've drawn a line there, understand that the heart of God is not simply for the proclamation of the gospel. The heart of God is a compassionate heart. His heart is to heal. His heart is to deliver. 
But it is in the gospel that people are delivered, ultimately, from their sin. Healing without gospel is failure in the long, in the in the grand scheme of things, people still die. So healing without gospel is inadequate. It's incomplete. In Luke 10, Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples on what we might call today a short-term mission. And among the specific instructions he gave them regarding the town to which they were sent was this, heal the sick in it, that is in the town to which they had been sent, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. The rule of God has come near to you. The invading kingdom has come near to you, and we are repelling those who previously occupied this space. Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There are some people that are morbidly preoccupied with demons. There are some Christians that are morbidly preoccupied with driving demons out of places. Jesus said, look, what this is all about is the proclamation of the gospel which has saved you. Rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. The apostle Paul was given authority. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, he reminded them regarding his former ministry among them that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This authority was given to the apostles for a specific purpose so that those who heard them would realize that they spoke on God's behalf, that their message was true, that the kingdom of God had invaded the kingdom of earth. But hear me now. There is no biblical evidence that anyone today possesses that same apostolic authority over demons and disease. In fact, Peter and Jude seem to imply that in the heavenly realms, believers occupy a rung on the ladder of spiritual authority somewhere below demonic spirits. And that our role when dealing with them is not to speak to them, not to rebuke them, not to bind them, but to speak to the King of kings and Lord of lords about them. In 2 Peter 2, verses 10 to 12, Peter's talking about false teachers, and he says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. That is, angelic beings, even demonic beings, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. 
So here are false teachers confronting demons, presuming to take authority over demons. Jude, the brother of Jesus, verse 9 of that one chapter book, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You with me right now? See where I'm going with this? Even Mark, Michael, the archangel, second only to Lucifer in his power and glory in the heavenly realms, would not rebuke Satan. He said, I'm going to leave that to the one who can really whoop up on you. I'm going to leave that to the one who's going to take out the big stick on you one day. But until then, I don't have authority. It's above my pay grade to say that to you. So for us as believers in Jesus Christ today, taking authority over demonic spirits or negative circumstances or or sickness is not a biblically prescribed posture. Staying in our lane means this, that we presume neither to take authority over Satan nor to rebuke him in Jesus' name nor to attempt somehow to bind him or his demons. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. There's a story in the Acts of the Apostles and it won't appear on your screen, but it's about these Jewish exorcists. They're referred to as the seven sons of Sceva, which sounds like a punk band to me. But seven sons of Sceva. And they're Jewish exorcists. And, and they, they'd seen Paul casting out demons. And they said, we want a piece of that action. There, we can get some money out of that. And so they confront this demon-possessed man. And when they say, we adjure you, we implore you, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the one thing they didn't want to have happen in that moment happened. The demon spoke back. And here's what the demon said. He said, well, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Who are you? You don't even have a profile in the heavenlies. You're not even on our radar. Who are you? And it says that the the demon leapt on that man that was speaking and shredded him. The kingdom of God does not consist in words. It doesn't consist in talk. It doesn't consist in, you know, puffing up our chest in some way and, 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 you know, being high and mighty. It is... It consists in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. So what do we do? Here's what we do. We don't rebuke the enemy. We don't bind the enemy. We say, Heavenly Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you rebuke Satan on my behalf. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you drive the demon out of this man or this woman. I I, I pray, Jesus, that you would heal this man or this woman. 
then what authority are we given, if any? John the Apostle wrote that everyone who receives Jesus, who believes in his name, is given the exousia, that is the authority, the power, the right, the permission to become the children of God. Rejoice not that you have power over demons. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. So when you trust in Christ as your Savior, when you submit to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, you are reborn, the Bible says. You are adopted into the family of God. Why? Because God himself wills it. And this morning you might say, well, I didn't know that God willed it. I thought I snuck in the back door. How lucky I am. Maybe I'd sneak into the kingdom without him noticing. No, no, no. That's not how that happens. If you're in the kingdom of God today, it's because he willed it to be so. That he chose you, he called you, he drew you to Christ. He gave you the gift of faith that would lead to salvation. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. But please understand that God has Satan on a leash. That he doesn't have free will to do just whatever he wants in your life and in your family, in your marriage, in your business, and in your stuff. Because you are a son or daughter of the king, he doesn't like anybody messing with his kids. Got it? Operational directive number three, resist the enemy. Join the real resistance. The word resist is a military term. It means standing your ground in the face of an assault. In this case of a, a demonic one, both James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, the apostle, give us this prescription. James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. See, there it is. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you, you don't have to rebuke the enemy. You don't have to, you know, kick him in the tail, the forked tail, that red forked tail of his. Resist him and he will flee from you, James says. First Peter 5, 8, and 9, the apostle Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Rebuke him, it says. Is that what it says? Bind him? Confront him? No. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there ain't nothing that's happened to you that hasn't happened to every believer in Christ at some point in their life. There's, Paul said it another way. He said there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So you and I are just garden variety sinners. You might think you're exotic. You're not. Sorry. It's garden variety sinners. Same temptations, same sins. Same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In Jesus' response to his temptation by the devil in the wilderness, we see the very best example of what it means to resist the devil. 
Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. This is right after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and and he's led by the Spirit into temptation. What a novel thought. You ever thought about that? You ever thought that, that maybe that the Spirit of God allows you to be tempted in certain ways for your strengthening, for your instruction, for your growth? Led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. How many of us think we would survive that? And he ate nothing during those days. 40 days of fasting, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, there's that little echo of Eden right there, right? If you really are. If you really are. Has God really said, if you are really the the son of God, command this stone to become bread, because after all, you're hungry. There isn't any bread out here in the desert. But you could command this stone and it would become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You remember last week we talked about the fact that when Satan was cast down to the earth, he was given authority over the earth. He is the prince, the ruler of this world. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. How did Jesus resist the devil? By the word of God. The revealed word of God. And when it says there in verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, that's literally what it means. That during those 40 days, the devil had turned loose on Jesus, not just these three that we're reading about, but every temptation, the fullness of temptation. And if you'll take some time on your own, we won't examine it today because we don't have time, but the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, all three of those summarize all that is in the world. And those three temptations we just read represent those three. Jesus resisted Satan. He gave him no quarter. He stood his ground on the truth of God's word, and so must we. Submit yourself to God. Posture of your heart. What's the posture of your heart? Submit yourself to God. 
Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil firm in your faith. That has to do with your mind, heart, and mind. And he will flee from you. If you're going to resist the devil in your life, it's going to be because you know you've taken the time to get to know God's word. And I wish I could tell you that there's another shortcut, but there isn't. You have got to get to know the word of God in your own life so that you know on the basis of God's word what is true, what is right, what is honoring to him. To Timothy, Paul wrote, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So endure hardship. Endure hardship. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Share in suffering. There's going to be suffering in the Christian life. There's a, there's a war going on. I was going to show a, a video clip this morning that, <laughs> that I think just represents what it means to suddenly be thrust into this battle when you trust in Christ. And it's from, it was, it was just too graphic. I, I went and found the clip and it was, it was just too graphic. But at the beginning of a movie called Enemy at the Gates, any of you seen that? Jude Law, Ed Harris. It's about the Battle of Stalingrad during World War II. At the beginning of the, the movie, uh, Jude Law and says some of his buddies are, are, are going along the tracks in a freight car, a train, freight train, car of freight train. And, and you don't know where they're headed. They're just in a freight train. And they're talking like friends and no big deal. And suddenly the train comes to a stop and the door comes open and they are in the middle of a war zone and bullets are flying every which way. People are dying. And I thought, what a great picture of what it means to become a Christian. (laughs) Because suddenly we are thrust into a, a war zone that we don't fully anticipate and we can't fully bring the strength to bear to, to deal with it. But there's going to be hardship. And so Paul says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The writer of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the battle for us. So let's, let's keep our eyes fixed on him as we engage the battle. Five, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. First Timothy 1, 18 to 19. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. See, fighting the good fight, or in the English Standard Version, it says waging the good warfare, means that we are to keep the faith, first of all. Again, that's our mind, upholding sound doctrine, and a good conscience. And that's, again, our heart, 
that we would live holy lives before him, that we would hold to a good conscience. Someday I'm going to do a whole series on what the Bible says about our conscience. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul said to, to Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our mind and our heart. There was a, a time a year or so ago when, when I, was, I began a sentence with, you know, some people really believe that the church would be more loving and unified if, if doctrine didn't get in the way. And there was a woman sitting back there where Katie is that said, Amen! That poor lady, because the rest of the sentence had to do with, they're wrong. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. The word fighting here in 1 Timothy 1.18 is in the Greek egonizomai. It's the word from which we get our word agonize. And Paul is saying to Timothy, to us today, I think, you are to agonize. You are to take pains. You are to commit yourself to the lifelong struggle of discerning the truth of God's word and holding on to it, never letting it Go, Jude, the brother of Jesus, verse 3 of that one-chapter letter. Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to contend, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One of the things that you ought to demand of me and the thing that that you ought to demand of every biblical teacher you hear is that we teach sound biblical doctrine. That's why you should have your Bible open when I'm preaching. Greg has called me once or twice and said, what's up with what you said about that? And he was right once. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote to Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. For 2 Corinthians 11, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In the Cotton Patch version of the Bible, it says they can go to hell. Came across an article this week online uh, from a guy named Tim Chowleys. He's a pastor up in Toronto. I'd never heard of him before, but he, this article was titled Seven False Teachers in the Church Today, and I thought it was so poignant that I wanted to share it with you this morning before we close. Seven types of false teachers, and he gives each one of them a label. The first one is the heretic. That one's easy to discern. It's the person who teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. And so we might think of 
Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, or Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, or Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, the founders of the Unity Church. They, they're just false teachers. They teach something that is blatantly unbiblical, unchristian. The second one is the charlatan. The charlatan, this is the person who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. Uh, we know about those people. He's only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his bank account. He uses his leadership position to benefit from the wealth of others. You might think of people like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Benny Hinn and, and others of that ilk. The third one is the prophet. The prophet, the prophet claims to be gifted by God to speak, to speak fresh revelation outside of Scripture. Um, new supposedly authoritative words of prediction, uh, of teaching, maybe of rebuke or encouragement. And in reality, though, this person is commissioned and empowered by Satan for the purpose of misleading and disrupting the church of Jesus Christ. I'll stop naming names. Fourth is the abuser who uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people. Might be financially, might be sexually, might be other in other ways. The abuser. Number five, the divider. The divider who uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. And this person often presents himself as the smartest man in the room. And people are amazed at his intelligence and his knowledge. He's, but, but he is a, a one who, who presents a minor point of doctrine and, and inflates it into a major one and, and thereby seeks to undermine the church, the leadership of the church, to introduce division. Why? Because it gives him a perverse sense of satisfaction. It inflates his pride. Sixth is the, uh, Chalice calls this one the tickler. The tickler. And here's the false teacher who cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what people want to hear. Uh, he's the man pleaser rather than the God pleaser. He's, his teaching is no more helpful than a fortune cookie. He preaches the parts of the Bible that, that the masses consider acceptable and affirming and encouraging. This is a man who preaches an empty gospel to a packed out church. Chalice concludes his article this way. Oh, you didn't get the last one, did I? The speculator. The speculator. He's the one that's obsessed with novel doctrines, originality, speculation. Uh, I, I, my shorthand for this person is usually the National Enquirer Christian. Uh, Teaching based on speculation displaces the sure and steady doctrine of Scripture. This guy will toss aside the, the bulk of the Bible's content and the weight of the Bible's emphasis in order to obsess about matters that are minor and trivial and novel. Speculator. Chalice concludes his article this way, Satan's greatest ambassadors... Will you please pay attention to this statement? Satan's greatest ambassadors do not peddle a different religion but a deadly perversion of the true one. 
And that's why they're so deceptive. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Discernment. Discernment. Sixth, sixth operational directive, stand firm. Paul wrote to the Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 14, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And he begins verse 14, stand therefore, stand therefore. Four times in five verses, he says, stand. It's about standing. Paul begins, finally, be strong in the Lord. Not just be strong, not not just kind of try to muster some energy for this thing. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his strength and in the strength of his might, not your own. You you can't fight this fight by yourself. Who was it that said, never bring a pocket knife to a gunfight? See, in this case, you and I are the pocket knife. We can't do this in our own strength and our own might. And Satan doesn't want us to stand. Standing firm against the enemy is not a matter of puffing up our chests. It's not a matter of confronting him, rebuking him, binding him, taunting him, ridiculing him, cussing him out, sharing a piece of our mind with him that we can ill afford to to lose. That's not what this is about. We're going to see much more about this in the coming weeks, so I'm just introducing this topic this week, but don't miss this. Standing firm means that we do not come in our own strength, but only in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might. Standing firm means that we give no ground to the enemy because he is strong for us. He is strong on our behalf. We are able to stand firm because God has provided every necessary resource, everything we need in order to stand firm. And we are able to stand firm because we are not fighting this battle, what? For victory, but we're fighting this battle from victory. Christ has won the victory. A decisive action was at the cross and the empty tomb. Everything else is reaction. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be examining the weapons of our warfare. I hope that you'll be here for it. Paul says the weapons of our warfare have divine power to demolish strongholds. And you're going to want to know what that means. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that 
you clothe us in your power. You clothe us in your righteousness. You send us into battle in your strength and the strength of your might. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what it means to stand firm and that we would be wise, that we would be discerning, that we would be shrewd because we have a formidable enemy uh, who is seeking whom he may devour. Lord, we thank you that uh, we're not going to be his lunch because we belong to you and uh, that the battle has been won. But Lord, help us to fight in this mop-up operation, uh, to fight well, to fight the good fight, to stand firm. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.